We are honored again today to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. And we're thankful for God's goodness and His mercy that He's extended to us even today. This first day of the week, this first Sunday, really in the month of July as well. We started in a way that, of course, is in accordance to the things of God. And aren't we delighted about that appreciation? It's so good to see everyone here today, our membership and our visitors alike. And we trust that as we engage in this service, we'll glorify and magnify the name of God. And each of us, of course, will be encouraged in the proper and right way as well. You may have noted in the bulletin that we come today to a consideration of a lesson, the title of which I've placed on the wall to my left. We're going to spend the next few moments giving some appreciation and giving some thought to the subject of social drinking alcohol, if you please. As you and I surround, or at least give thought to this topic, these introductory thoughts, it seems to me, are well worthwhile as they motivate us further along our way. You and I know very well the kind of society in which we live. A society, when it comes to this subject, is one that it's very commonplace. More often than not, no thought to the contrary is given, at least by many people, to the reality of the possibility of anything wrong with social drinking. Not only that, you appreciate with me as well. It presents to you and me a circumstance of temptation. We know that not only those that are young, but even those that are older, find themselves in a position where perhaps a group, those that are younger, maybe there's a group of high school students, they're going to engage in this, and they rather paint a dramatic picture that you're not normal if you don't. And you're not one to be a part of the group if you don't. May I suggest, though, even those who are older, sometimes business executives and others, they will freely engage over the course of a business dinner in this. And may again, they look with some disdain upon those who would even question it. But in addition to those things, it can be a matter of confusion even for a Christian. There actually are individuals who will stand rather openly in a pulpit and preach there's nothing wrong with social drinking. You and I today aren't interested in human opinion. We'd like to know what the Bible has to say about this. What saith the Scripture under the banner of the famous question of Romans 4 verse 3? Two final thoughts. There are some myths that often are asserted and utilized to, in fact, in the mind of some, make it appear that social drinking must be okay. Now again, we're going to look at what some of those myths are, and we're going to try to dispel them, of course, as we go. But along with that, may I say, the truth is what's of greatest important interest to us. And so let's begin, let's commence a study, if you please, of this rather interesting subject. Myth number one. The first myth to which I would invite each of us to give some consideration is the word wine. W-I-N-E in English. You and I know today that when we use that word in the modern language, we have immediate reflection and reference to a beverage that's alcoholic. We use a different word for things that are non-alcoholic. But may I say, when you and I then encounter the word wine in the Bible, if we look at it through the lens only of modern language, we may just automatically assume that every time that word appears, it automatically has reference to what was alcoholic what was fermented, if you will. That again is myth number one. That simply is not true. Remember, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. It was written in the New Testament in Greek, 
the Old Testament written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And in those particular languages, one has to ask, how was that word that's translated wine used? Did it always mean alcoholic or did it not? And therefore, let's come to the bottom of that slide. I thought we would look at several verses, in fact, where the word wine appears and look at how that particular word was employed, allowing it to help us understand the nature of how the Bible uses the word wine. I'm going to present several cases, and I think the matter will be an evident one. First of all, in Psalm 104, verse 15, wine is an absolute blessing from God and is said to be a matter of gladness. Now, that chapter is one in which there's a presentation of God's goodness. Even the animals of the field, it testifies, they enjoy the grass and they enjoy the rain and the water that comes, and it's because God avails it to them. And then he turns his attention to the human family and says, human beings enjoy God's goodness as well. His blessings on a constant and daily basis. And among that list, he says, don't you know the wine you enjoy is a matter of gladness? So on this occasion, wine is testified to be a matter in gladness. But what about Habakkuk 2.15? There, wine is cataloged as something that's a curse. It's cataloged as something that's so very different. In fact, it's to be avoided there. Now, how can this be? The same kind of entity that's described as gladness on one occasion is described as a curse on another. Well, the answer is, it's not discussing the same type, the same character, if you please, of object. Let's look at another one. In John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, wine is sanctioned. So much so that Jesus made 150 gallons of it and freely allowed it to be utilized at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Clearly, whatever is under consideration there is approved and sanctioned by God. But on the other hand, in Proverbs 20 verse 1, and in the lesson text that was read in our hearing a moment ago, be not drunk with wine. Here it's condemned. How can the same thing be condemned in one verse and sanctioned and approved in another one. Again, the answer is clear. It's talking about two different kinds of wine. And it's the same original word, but it's two different manifestations of it. Look at a third case. Not only are these two opposites, but consider this one. In Judges 9 verse 13, wine is said to bring cheer. It is what develops into gladness that it encourages the heart. But by the same token, in Proverbs 4.17, it brings violence. This wine is associated directly with violence. How can this be? It brings violence and hurt on one hand, but it brings cheer and gladness on the other. Same answer as before. It's two different wines under consideration. It's two different manifestations of this. Our conclusion that we're reaching is this, the same word wine that appears in a given passage. It doesn't always mean alcoholic, and it doesn't always mean non-alcoholic. Let's look at one more. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, wine is a wonderful blessing. It's a blessing. It is cataloged amongst that chapter of ideas in which one appreciates again how wonderfully good God has been. But in Isaiah 28, 7, it brings divine wrath. How can the same thing bring divine wrath, divine wrath and also be a blessing? 
You and I know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. In every one of these four instances, what is being described is one of the verses has to do with a kind of wine that really is a blessing. It really is sanctioned. But the other kind of wine is one that is disapproved. It's one that's condemned. It's one that's a curse. As you and I develop all of them, Let's come to the bottom of that slide and then note this. There are some clear Bible references to instances in which the word wine is not intoxicating. That is to say, it's not alcoholic. It's not fermented. Let's begin in Jeremiah 48:33. Here in the heart of the Old Testament, that great prophet of old, as God spoke through him, made reference to the fact that wine was in the wine press. Now, you and I know individuals would crush the grapes in the ancient era, and God said that liquid that's in the wine press is wine. So there's clear, inst- clear reference to the word wine being to something that's not alcoholic. It had just come freshly out of the grape. To that might we add Isaiah 65, 8. In that interesting section, we notice one more time that what's in the grape that liquid that's actually in the cluster is called wine. Now, one more time, there's been no fermentation there. It's what you and I today would call grape juice. In Isaiah 16.10, the same reference occurs. To that, we might add one more in Amos 9.13. All of those are the word wine, and it's clear that it's not in anything that would be alcoholic. But it's also true that there are references in which the word wine is alcoholic. In Genesis 9.21, shortly after the flood, one of the things Noah began to do was he began to be one who tended a vineyard. And you know that what Noah and his family did is on one occasion they produced alcoholic beverage out of that. That seems to me to immediately teach us this. Mankind has known for a long time how to produce alcoholic beverages, at least as far back as Genesis 9. People have known how to do this. Why don't we add to that Proverbs 20 verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The kind of wine under description there is condemned by God. And those who are deceived by it, this kind of wine is capable of deception. We each know what alcoholic beverage does to you. It gives you a sense that's not really true. It defrauds and deceives. To that might we add Ephesians 5.18. That was read a moment ago, be not drunk with wine. When you and I think about that assertion, that's a very plain commandment. There's no misunderstanding it. The kind of wine that's under consideration there, he says, don't be drunk with it. If you and I are to please God, there's no question about this. One final thought. Even stretching back into the days of the Old Testament, in the days of Habakkuk, it was asserted, wasn't it, that it's a woe if you give your neighbor to drink of the kind of liquid that's condemned. Now, none of us would want to contribute to the sin of another by being a party to this. So myth number one has been... Some think that the word wine is always alcoholic when it's used in the Bible, but we've shown that isn't so. What about a second myth? Something else that sometimes is thought but really isn't true. It reads like this. Some think then that the Bible automatically 
approves of wine even in its alcoholic form. Again, because the word appears, some just assume then that it's a matter of approval. Consider these following thoughts with me. You and I know there are many things the Bible mentions that it doesn't approve. It mentions fornication, but doesn't approve it. It mentions deceit and lying, but it doesn't approve them either. The Bible may well mention things about wine, but certainly not approve every single aspect of it. Could we be so direct as to say at the bottom, if we're going to use the Word of God as an affirmation of approval, a text has to have three things in it. First, that text has to mention wine. Secondly, from what we've just studied, it has to be concluded from the context that that wine is, is intoxicating. And thirdly, there has to be the clear statement in that passage that God approves of it. If any one of the three is not there, that passage couldn't reasonably and logically be used to approve of alcoholic beverage, the wine as, as it's being claimed. Now, when you and I think about, so is there a passage that would have all three of those elements in it? Well, maybe myth number three will bring us to the next consideration. There are some who then immediately make this statement. Ancient people couldn't have prevented fermentation. You take some grape juice, just the nature of heat's going to make it become alcoholic, and they couldn't help it. Is that so? Is that the way things work to the ancient world? Now, you and I know today that we have means whereby we can preserve grape juice as long as we want it. And we can always ensure that we have non-alcoholic beverage. But myth number three, do alcoholic beverages just make themselves? Can you take apple juice or grape juice or some other fruit juice and just kind of leave it on a shelf long enough and it'll become alcoholic? Well, let's study about that for a moment. First of all, what is involved in the fermentation process? You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, fermentation is a process that involves the necessity of yeast. That is to say, this particular kind of fungus. And what it does is it attaches itself to the outer skin of the grape. Then, as you'll notice, those grapes contain sugar. In fact, a fair amount of it. Grapes contain both sucrose, dextrose, and, and fructose. And as you notice about all of them, at the harvest, those grapes are crushed. What happens when the sugar, then with that yeast, are able to work together? Well, you notice I've tried to put it on that slide. Enzymes begin the work of action, and as they do, a chemical reaction takes place yielding carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol. Now, that's the process involved in this. But notice quickly at the bottom, does it happen naturally? Does it happen in a way like that that you could produce an edible beverage? The answer is no. That process must be rather closely superintended in order to yield a beverage that's drinkable. Any number of things can develop. What if the alcohol content becomes too great? What if the sugar content is insufficient? What if some other means, that is to say, as the mash develops in the fermentation, what if that isn't removed? What we're learning is at the bottom, you have to constantly mix and stir the solution. Furthermore, 
you have to maintain a very careful temperature range within a matter of a few degrees, a little bit one way or the other, and the resulting chemical reaction will, will in fact cease. One final thought. You have to remove by filtration the unwanted products. Our lesson is alcoholic beverages do not, nor have they ever made themselves. It takes a very careful and well-appreciated process. So we've dispelled myth three. What about myth four? Isn't it true that we could add this one? I mentioned this in passing a moment ago in light of myth three. So is it the case that in ancient people, they couldn't help but have alcoholic beverages? They didn't have all the things we have today to preserve things in an unfermented state. Well, is that so? Let's look at a few statements. First of all, that myth is simply that. Ancient people knew very, very well how to, how to in fact, preserve non-alcoholic beverage. They knew very well how to stop the fermentation process if they wanted to. In fact, I've listed at least five things known to the ancient world. Five things that have been detailed in many writings from ancient individuals who could stop the process of fermentation. Number one, heat. All you got to do is take that grape juice and boil it. If you go above 140 degrees for as much as 10 minutes, you destroy that entire process. The yeasts are killed. There's one way it could easily be done. The other way is just as powerful. If you cool it sufficiently below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, the chemical reaction will stop. You can cease all the characteristics attached to the matter of the fermentation process. Heating or cooling, either one would do it. In fact, it's that latter one that many times is referenced in, in, in many writings. In fact, statements were made in the Roman Empire of individuals who would take their juice, put it into a, a container sealed, and sink it into a cold stream. The writing said, if you do that, you'll have pure juice for years. They knew how to prevent fermentation if they wanted to prevent it. Look at number three, filtering. If you carefully filter and remove those elements that are a part in the chemical reaction, again, the reaction will cease. Number four, evaporation. The boiling point of ethyl alcohol is 172 degrees, and that's less than the boiling point of grape juice. All you got to do is boil it, and that'll take away the things that are, in the, that are the alcoholic character. Number five, air exclusion. From what we studied earlier, we know that chemical reaction requires air. So if you take this juice and seal it off from air, it'll never ferment. Now to say all of that is to say ancient people knew how to prevent fermentation and they made alcoholic beverages if they wanted them, but they knew how to prevent it if they didn't. It's a myth to think they didn't have any choice. They had a choice just like we have a choice today. If a person wants alcoholic beverage, you can go find it. But if you don't, then you can easily find that which is not alcoholic. Myth number four has perhaps brought us to this. Let's turn our attention to some facts. Having dispelled these myths, perhaps some of which you and I have heard many times through the years, why don't we think then about these facts? The Bible condemns the social consumption of alcohol, both Old and New Testament, and it does so without apology. 
as you look at some of these passages and considerations. We've already looked at the Proverbs 20 text as well as the Habakkuk 2 text. Let's consider the John chapter 2 one. My suspicion is this is one of the first ones to which most individuals will turn. There are songs on the radio that talk about Jesus making wine and using that as a direct evidence for it's okay if I do it. We've already learned something about the nature then of the, word, of the Bible word wine. Turn with me to John chapter 2 and let's look at that scene. The marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. What kind of wine did Jesus make? Does the text indicate, does it say? In that text that comes before us, we're told this was the first miracle our Savior performed. And a third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and His disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they fill them to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And so one thing we can say for sure is this passage does reference wine. Furthermore, as it references that wine, you and I notice Jesus sanctioned it. Whatever this was, the Lord made it miraculously. Now you and I are told that this was alcoholic. How do we know it was? What textual considerations lead to the conclusion that it was? Well, may I ask you to note this. In verse number 10, the text says, Every man at the beginning has set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk. So that phrase, well drunk, is typically taken to be, here are individuals who have just drunk a lot, and they're inebriated and basically don't much more know which way is up. But may I note that the Greek word that's there just means satisfied. They're full. They've had enough. It doesn't have anything to do with what typically is asserted as the meaning of that word. In fact, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one, as well as Psalm 23, 5 and Haggai 1, 6. And in those cases, all it means is the person is satisfied. In addition to that, would you think with me about this? There was a high compliment paid to the bridegroom. It says, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. Now this feast had been ongoing for some time, and yet there still was the discernment to tell what wine was good and what wine was not. Now may I say, a person in a drunken stupor, as you and I would call it today, would have a hard time discerning what was high quality and what wasn't. Doesn't much more know than anything. 
And yet the person who here spoke could discernedly tell this wine that was made is of higher quality, it's better. He still had a keen sense of appreciation of what discernment was. That seems to suggest he wasn't inebriated. And that would suggest something else as well. Look at the last point. We might ask, how much is two or three firkins? The Lord said, fill six water pots, and each one of them held two or three firkins. Now, firkin is an ancient unit of volume. In some total, those six would have included somewhere around 150 gallons. Our Lord made about 150 gallons of wine. Now, you and I know it doesn't take much to inebriate somebody. And so if Jesus made that much, and if this was alcoholic, He contributed to the overt, full drunkenness of many a person. And you cannot contribute in promotion to somebody else's sin and you not be guilty yourself. And the fact is, Jesus never, ever sinned. Hebrews 4.15 affirms it. 1 Peter 2.21 continues that thought. This was an alcoholic wine. It wasn't. The ancients were known to mix grape juice with water. And as they did, of course, to dilute it, that would make the grape juice last longer. This person realized what the Lord made. That particular wine that was then before him was of high quality. Now, he didn't know where it had come from, but the servants knew. It was an alcoholic. One can't use this passage to try to use it to claim that, in fact, it's okay. Why don't we then consider the following? Others look at Luke 7, verses 31 and following, as another passage that seems to offer approval for this. Jesus is called a wine-bibber. What does that mean? So again, apparently Jesus drank wine. What kind of wine did Jesus drink? You and I know well, He was the Son of God and perfect He was. And if He drank alcoholic beverage, surely it's fine for everybody else. But if He didn't, then it would be wrong for us to assert that he did. He's called a wine-bibber in this passage. The context, in fact, informs us of much. John the Baptist is under discussion as well. You'll note this. John drank no wine, but Jesus is called a wine-bibber. Now, when you and I appreciate the kind of man that John was, that explains a great deal. John was a Nazarite. According to Numbers chapter 6, verses 4 and following, Nazarites could not, they couldn't have any fruit of the, of the vine, even grapes or raisins, all their life. As those of his day witnessed John, they saw a very unusual man. He didn't eat raisins. He didn't drink any kind of grape juice, any kind of wine as they would call it. But yet Jesus did, and they used that to claim, well, this man, Jesus, is a wine-bibber. Notice again, that has nothing to say about the alcoholic character. Jesus just drank grape juice, whereas John didn't. What about another passage? Apart from the matter of that Nazarite, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, we encounter here a passage in which Paul addressed Timothy, and he said, Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Timothy had some kind of stomach problem. The Bible goes no further in explaining it. Whatever that ailment was, perhaps he had a perpetual upset stomach. Perhaps there were matters in the food or the liquids of that day that would prompt, shall we say, a worse episode of that. 
Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Drink no longer water, but again, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Many will take that and thus assert, Well, there it is. I can drink a little wine. You and I have already learned something. Are we guaranteed that that wine was alcoholic? May I submit, if you write a letter to the Welch's Grape Juice Company, they will write you an extensive reply letter, I'm sure, extolling the medicinal benefits of grape juice. And perhaps you and I could remember even our family members on occasion, which in fact would assert the same. Water sometimes may upset a stomach, but grape juice will not. It could well be that what Timothy was asserted was, it's okay if you take some grape juice to assist in light of the stomach problems you have. May I say, if that be so, you'll notice Timothy must have been a person who fully abstained from all fruit of the vine, if that's true. But may I say, even if you operate on the illusion that this was alcoholic, all it would do is grant a medicinal use for alcohol, perhaps in minor amounts. Now, again, we have found no justification for the social consumption in any way, not even in that passage. Why don't we add one more? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 17, our Savior made a presentation on that occasion as He compared His gospel to the old law of Moses. But as a part of that presentation, He talked about wineskins and what you put into it. You don't put new wine in an old wineskin, He said. And that clearly was a fact they understood and knew. He was talking about the matter of the gospel. The gospel was not placed in such a way that it borrowed and used the full features of the Old Testament. It's a different covenant. It's not tacked on, if you please, to the old law of Moses. It's a whole new thing. Well, in, in that discussion, though, what did he mean when he said, you don't put new wine into old wineskins? Many take that as an immediate assumption. So, here the Lord is making preparation for fermentation. You put that wine into the wine skin as it ferments, of course the bag will need to stretch. So was Jesus thus asserting it's okay to carry around some alcoholic beverage and drink it? May I say that's the exactly opposite of what that passage teaches. Did you notice with me a moment ago? In the fermentation process, carbon dioxide and ethyl alcohol are produced. At that time, we didn't say how much carbon dioxide. 50 gallons of carbon dioxide for every gallon of alcoholic beverage. There is no bag, I don't care what it's made of, it's going to stretch that much. The Lord wasn't talking about the fermentation process by way of approval. He was talking about our exclusion. You prevent the air from getting to it in order to preserve it in the pure state. There is no container that's going to withstand the kind of pressure from a 50 to 1 ratio. Maybe you and I can say this. Looking at all of that, what's our conclusion today? In our attempt to dispel the myths and to learn what the book of God says, we might well begin in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine. The word drunk comes from a word that means to begin the process of becoming inebriated, to begin to be softened. Notice it's not describing merely the final state. It's the entire process from first drop to last. 
And Paul said, don't do any of it. We live in a world that is suffering beneath the devil's beverage. Oh, how the evil and the harm that comes from the pursuit of alcohol as a beverage. And yet, Paul told us centuries ago, don't do this. Isn't it true? In 1 Peter 4, verse number 3, as the various sins of the Gentiles were listed, Peter commented that, first, there is excess of wine. That is, those who have drunk a lot. Well, we understand that. But there are two more words listed. One of them is revelings. The other is banquetings. The latter one particularly means drinking. It doesn't have anything to do with excess. Even in moderate amounts. Peter said this is wrong. Each of us need to be fully committed in our mind to this. So that even when the pressure of a moment were to arise, we will not be persuaded. And will not give in to that which the Bible condemns. These myths that we've dispelled bring us to a point of conclusion. One can't use a myth and hope to be sufficient before the eyes of God. Our sufficiency is of God, to read 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. Rather, you and I have had a desire and attempt to understand that this matter of alcohol, it is a drug. Ethyl alcohol is a drug. It's been known for decades. It impacts the mind in the same way that other things recognized overtly as drugs do. And the Bible condemns drug abuse. And so it would also, in that way, condemn this social alcohol, the drinking of this in a social way. As we and I have studied this today, may we be thankful for the teaching of the Word of God, that we can know what's wrong and what's right. And we can avoid that which is wrong and pursue that which is right. It might well be as you and I analyze our life, in light of those things of which you and I do on a daily basis, if you've never become a Christian today, why not let today be the day? It may be that alcohol has never posed an issue for you, but other sins, of course, will too separate you from God. We would love to see you be immersed into Christ today. Believe in Jesus with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name, and then submit to, to being immersed, to being baptized. It is in that way that the blood of Christ washes your sins away. If you've begun that walk and known the fullness and the glory of it, but maybe you have become defocused to the sense that you've begun to wander off and to pursue other things in life, and you've brought reproach upon the church, upon your life as a Christian, upon the very things for which Jesus stands. You realize Jesus loves you and He wants you to serve Him faithfully again and He invites you in such a loving way to come back to His side. If we could help you today by praying to God for you, we'd be delighted to do it. This song of encouragement has been selected and we'll use this as a time of invitation just as Jesus would wish us to do. If there would be anybody in the audience that would have a desire to wish to allow us to assist you in a public way. Why don't you come and do it now while together we stand and while we sing.